I think we're all philanthropists. I mean, really, I define it as anyone who really cares about humanity and recognizing that we all give in very meaningful ways. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Chris Putnam-Walkerly, a trusted advisor to the world's leading philanthropists. One of my favorite things about the Smart Money Mamas community is that our mamas are overwhelmingly values-focused and intent on making the world a better place. So when I was introduced to Chris, I knew she had to come on the show to share her charitable giving advice with all of us. For over 20 years, ultra-high net worth donors, foundations, Fortune 500 companies, celebrity activists, and wealth advisors have sought Chris's advice to transform their giving and catapult their impact. She's also the thought leader behind transformational giving and the author of Delusional Altruism, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. And now she's here to help us have the most impact with our own charitable donations. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Chris, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Chris, that's K-R-I-S, for the complete show notes and to download your free family money values template. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Smart Money Mamas show. Hi, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited that you're here because you have a very cool job where you help people give away their money. (laughs) So tell me how you got into this field. I have a master's in social work, and I thought that I was going to be running nonprofit social service agencies when I graduated. And then I finished my master's and I went to work at Stanford University, and I was actually evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs. I got intrigued by the idea in grad school about how do you evaluate the effectiveness of nonprofits. Yeah. So I took that position and it was funded entirely by one foundation, the California Wellness Foundation. And I was very intrigued again by the power of philanthropy and how if you're a philanthropist, I mean, you have wealth of some sort, but you need more than money. And so if you're really smart about it, you bring in the right expertise, you look at the research, identify best practices look at the right models, you know, you can really deploy your resources in meaningful ways to create change. And so I thought, well, maybe this would be a good path to pursue. So I took a job at a foundation, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, which at the time was like the largest in the country. This is before the Gates Foundation was created and learned that I liked philanthropy and kept getting offers to do some consulting on the side. So I started doing that, learned I liked consulting and uh, ended up launching my practice. That was about 20 years ago. Now, I think if I heard this correctly, you've helped people give away $500 million? Over, yeah. Over $500 million. It's an incredible achievement. Do you have any impact favorite organizations that you've been able to transform and get money to? There really are no favorites. I get asked that question a lot. But I guess things that I turn to, I think about, are when lots of different kinds of people and organizations come together collectively to try to address a problem like I live in Cleveland, Ohio, and there's a project here, an initiative called Pre for CLE. And what it stands for is high quality preschool for all three and four year olds in Cleveland. And to do that, to actually have high quality preschool for every three and four year old, you need to bring a lot of resources together. So I helped work with the Cleveland School District and many foundations, the county, the city of Cleveland, providers, 
transportation, you know, like busing, because parents have to get their kids to the preschool and then get to work. So all of these efforts, you know, you have to really coordinate and then you figure out, well, where are their gaps? Where are the existing assets to build upon? Is it culturally appropriate in the right language? You know, there's all these things. And you really need many times a comprehensive approach that draws upon the strengths and resources of different kinds of organizations in a community. Absolutely. So I'm a big believer that words matter and making sure that we're all talking about the same thing. So let's start with what is a philanthropist? Yeah, well, it's a funny word because it sounds very highfalutin, right? Like, you know, Jeff Bezos or his ex-wife, Mackenzie Scott or, you know, whoever, Elon Musk or somebody. I think we're all philanthropists. I mean, really, I define it as anyone who really cares about humanity and recognizing that we all give in very meaningful ways. And obviously, you know, we all come at this from varying levels of wealth. It's more than, so if you're giving away $100 or $1,000 or $100,000, right, it's you give what you can. And I think also it's important to recognize that we are more than money. So we can give more than cash or cryptocurrency, I suppose, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) because we can give our, our volunteer time, our knowledge, our connections, opening doors for a nonprofit leader in your community could be very meaningful. I mean, you know, back in the day when we had house parties, you know, if you have a nice house and you invite a nonprofit to throw an event there, that's giving, even if you're not actively giving the money. One example I like to share of a way that anybody could have helped a nonprofit last spring during the pandemic was many nonprofits were trying to figure out what is this, you know, PPP loan? What are my options for these loans? How do I apply for them? And a lot of nonprofits didn't have any relationship with a banker. Yes, they had a checking account at a bank, but that came with like an 800 number. It didn't come with a human being, you know what I mean, attached that knew that nonprofit. And simply by, if there's a nonprofit that you worked with, and you could have talked to that executive director and said, hey, I have a great banking relationship with X bank. Would you want to have a conversation with them about this loan and how to do it and what the implications are? That would have been hugely helpful and cost you nothing. So that's just an example of ways that you can help beyond the checkbook. Absolutely. The networking. And we mentioned before we get on the call, Chris, that a lot of people in the Smart Money Mamas community are a little bit earlier in their money journey, right? They're focused on wealth building and getting there, but we're early on and we're trying to build the habit of giving. So two of the most common questions we get are how much should we give and which causes do we support? But as I was reading your book, Delusional Altruism, you were saying that how we give is actually as important, if not more important than those two questions. So talk about why does that matter? What does that mean? So people often think about, well, how much do I give or which charities do I choose? But I think the ways in which we give, I think, are actually very important. And one of the things I think your listeners want to think about is what is important to you and why do you exist as a philanthropist, as a funder, as a philanthropic family, as a mom, you know, as a person who wants to give back to your community, figuring out those questions and kind of starting with those questions of what causes are meaningful to me? What kind of difference do I want to make in the community? What kind of philanthropic family do I want to create? What kind of philanthropic beliefs do I want to instill in my children? You know, whatever it might be, and starting with those questions and getting clarity on that first, because there are literally millions of nonprofits in the world that you can support. There's no limit. And that can be very overwhelming, which to choose. But I think if you start with those kind of what questions first, then it helps you figure out the how you want to give. And also, again, how means things like 
It's not just looking at a nonprofit and trying to figure out, well, I'm going to fund the nonprofit that has the least amount of overhead. Well, you hear the commercials of 99 cents of every dollar goes to help the people in your community and only one cent goes to like, quote unquote, overhead. Really, that doesn't make any sense. I think that's delusional because as we all know, we need lights on in our house to function. You know, we need to invest in our children's education for them to be successful. Nonprofits need to invest in themselves to be able to have the right talent, have good technology to be able to suddenly convert a in-person gala to an online gala. They need good financial management systems, just like a business does. And so those investments, I think, are really important. And especially during these volatile times that we're in, being able to help a nonprofit leader by providing them really unrestricted support. Here is a gift or a grant for general operating. You can use the money however you want. If you the art museum needs to just stay open for the next six months, go for it. If you want to use it for strategic planning, great. If you want to use it to provide scholarships for kids, great. But like trusting that nonprofit leader to know their community, the issues and how they need to pivot both to navigate around challenges and also to take advantage of opportunities that might be right in front of them. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about 2020 and all of the big shocks that happened to the entire country in the world, but really philanthropy in general. How do we think about direct versus nonprofit giving? What I saw in our community a big surge of was really looking for people in their community of like, I can't buy groceries or I need something for my kids. And we saw a lot of communities step up and support individuals. How do you weigh as a philanthropist at any stage of your journey direct giving versus nonprofit giving? I think it really depends on the situation. And I think all forms of giving are really important. And that kind of mutual aid and support is extraordinarily helpful. I mean, I remember I have twins. And I remember after I gave birth to twins, the neighbors who I didn't really know that well, organized dinner delivery to our house. You know, every two nights, there was like some new meal that was arriving, which was fabulous. (laughs) Or people who are looking out for each other. I mean, I think that kind of People caring about others in their community is a really important part of our social fabric that needs to be maintained regardless. Going back to when I mentioned I was evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs, one of the hallmarks of a healthy community was if the neighbors were looking out for the other neighbor kids. If a neighbor kid was like getting into trouble, the neighbor you know, would call the parents, would like do something, not just turn their cheek. And so I think that caring for each other is important regardless. And at the same time, there's obviously needs that people have that go way beyond getting groceries that day. But, you know, if you have mental health issues or substance abuse issues or whatever, those kinds of needs can require, you know, long-term support or ongoing support or being able to be there again when there's recidivism and the, the now sober teenager starts using again, that nonprofit still needs to be there for counseling and support for that organization. So I think all types of support are really important. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier working with an organization that was trying to figure out how do you measure impact of a charitable organization? And I know that that is still something that is very much being worked on and it's very hard, but what are some ways that nonprofits measure impact on really big issues, right? Like clean water or preschool for all kids or things like that? Yes. Well, the answer, of course, is it depends. <laughs> and, you know, it depends on a, on a lot of things, right? Because I'm um, obviously clean water is a very different issue to 
evaluate against than early childhood education or teen pregnancy prevention or whatever the issue might be, right? So I think for the nonprofit's perspective, it's important to figure out, or even the donor, what is it that you want to learn that will give you confidence that either this is moving in the right direction or you are helping people having a, making a difference in their lives? And then what's the best way to gather that information with the resources that you have? And who's the audience? And I say who's the audience because it's one thing for a donor to say, you know, hey, I'm going to support this organization that helps kids get into college. And I will feel confident when I attend the annual gala, you know, virtual or in person. And young people who were supported and, and talk about their experience and how this group helped them get into college and stay in college, share verbally that experience, that will give me confidence to know this was a great organization and my money is making a difference. Well, like, that's awesome. That's all you need to know. But if you are trying to make that case to Congress, <laughs> you know, that this model should receive new federal funding, it's going to require more than like kids on a stage telling their story, right? So that's who's your audience, because that kind of dictates the level or depth or level of scrutiny, the, the evaluation design that you want. And also, you know, I think it's important for donors to recognize that evaluation costs money. It doesn't just happen. Too often, I see people giving like $1,000 to an organization and then expecting like some kind of research study demonstrating the impact of their $1,000. Well, it doesn't work that way. So thinking about if you're giving at a level, if the organization you're supporting doesn't already evaluate, how can you help them raise the funds to conduct that evaluation or being realistic about what your donation is actually accomplishing. Absolutely. But it is an important question. And I do say, you know, there are a lot of resources that exist and a lot of new technology platforms that are trying to help people make these decisions, but it's hard. So one example is Charity Navigator. So any of the listeners could go to charitynavigator.org and, you know, it provides a lot of information about the nonprofit, but they still grapple with impact and take that substance abuse treatment example. Well, you know, recidivism is very common for people who are addicts, right? So is it bad that the person became sober for two years and then started using again? Well, obviously you don't want that, but that doesn't mean they did a bad job. It means that now that young person has a lot more knowledge and understanding of the situation, probably has a lot more resources and supports, knows where to go to AA meetings or whatever. But there's a lot stacked against that young person and there they are. So I think you really also need to be mindful of what you're trying to accomplish and uh, what it takes to actually accomplish it. And I feel like this ties back to your comment earlier about overhead and only looking for organizations with the minimum overhead. Tracking this on an ongoing basis costs money. And if the organization can't do that, how do they know if their work is having impact and how do they get better? I think a lot of times when they're cash starved, it's just hoping that what you're doing is working instead of being able to actually take the time and go visit and see, do we need to tweak? Do we need to change practices? Things like that. Yeah, it's really a vicious circle for a lot of nonprofits. In the book, Delusional Altruism, I write about how philanthropists often have this scarcity mindset, which people find surprising because often we equate wealth with abundance and not scarcity. But it's really this misguided belief that all your donations should go and help, let's just say, the community, right? And not recognizing the value of investing in the nonprofit so that they can be strong and successful. And, you know, we sort of, there's this expectation that nonprofits should be very frugal. Staff shouldn't make very much money. They go from grant to grant to grant. And it forces them to have a hard time 
attracting staff, retaining staff. There's lots of, can be lots of turnover. And if all you're doing as the executive director is chasing money, then it's very hard to have time to think, be strategic, build relationships, assess your progress and your impact. And it just is a cyclical problem. And I think more investment, again, we mentioned how you give matters is a key theme of the book. And again, thinking about if there's a nonprofit that you really care about, that you think is doing a great job, don't you want them to have the top talent, great financial management systems, the ability to fundraise and communicate effectively and assess their impact? Like, of course you do. So think about ways that you can invest in those kinds of systems and supports. I love that you talked about scarcity mindset in the book, because we talk about money mindset all the time here. And one of the stories that we talk to people about is this idea of the starving artist, that if you want to do good in the world, you're not going to make a lot of money. And I think that plays into both the philanthropist side, like you were saying, believing that those people shouldn't be paid very much, and those doing that work, keeping themselves stuck in struggle, right, of not not knowing to even ask for more pay for the very important work that they're doing for the world. Yeah, you know, I used to do a lot of consulting with Charles Schwab's Family Foundation. And I remember reviewing proposals and, you know, they'd outline this project that cost $100,000. What they really should have asked for was $50,000 because this was a foundation sizable enough that was giving $50,000 grants away. And they'd ask for $5,000. And I would just cringe because I'd think, my God, ask for more. Like, you need more, you know, like, it's okay. You're allowed to ask for what you actually need. Yeah. Like we know you're not running off to the Bahamas and taking the cash. Like, so there is a scarcity mindset that the nonprofits have also. Again, it it feeds on the funders and the scarcity mindset applies to the donors themselves too. Donors need to think about, and this for folks that are giving away $1,000 a year or $100,000 a year, what do you need to invest in yourself to have the greatest impact you can have as a donor. And that could involve no money. It could just involve some time, taking a couple hours to brainstorm what are the issues that are meaningful to you or to your family, or taking some time to learn about your community, or to go on some site visits, or to be involved in a board of directors, you know, whatever that might be, that's an investment in you and your learning. Or it could be bringing on an advisor or coach like myself to help you navigate your philanthropic journey and and figure out the ways that you can have the greatest impact. And there's also got to be, when you're talking about investing in yourself and in doing the research, I imagine there's often a step of reviewing your own biases that goes into this as well, right? Oh, absolutely. I think we all need to check ourselves and our own biases because we all have them (laughs) and really learn from people, the people you want to help, really. I mean, so if you think about, you know, pick any issue, And actually, Chelsea, I'll just ask you, like, what's the issue or cause that you care about? Ocean conservation. Ocean conservation. Okay, well, you can't talk to the fish, but you can talk to the ocean conservation. (laughs) I should have picked a different thing. (laughs) Education is a huge one for us as well. So I used to do a bunch of work with City Year in Boston. Oh, yeah. And I really love that organization as well. I was thinking about my... Let's just side note for a second. (laughs) We are doing a lot of... Our kids are five and three, but we're already starting to get them used to giving and thinking about their community. And so ocean conservation is a huge thing for my husband. It's very, very important to him. And my boys love sea creatures and everything. So they've been doing their own saving and giving from their money to ocean conservation. That's why it popped up in my head. But yes, education is another good choice. Perfect. (laughs) 
Yes, well, regardless. So it's like talking to people. So if it's, you know, helping young people get into college, well, like talking to high school students, talking to college students that have gone through, you know, what are their needs? What's hard about staying in college? It might not be what you think it is. So part of that checking your biases is also just checking your lived experience against someone else's lived experience and making sure that you're not making assumptions about what needs to be done. Maybe getting into college is very different today than it was when you got into college 20 years ago. <laughs> and or, you know, talking to the leaders of the marine organizations, marine conservation organizations to understand from their perspective. I mean, really, you can do a lot of this information online of just gathering data. I advise people to give yourself like a time limit because we've all done Google searches that have gone on forever. And by the end, you forgot what you started looking for, right? (laughs) (laughs) The black hole. So say I'm going to spend, you know, four hours max trying to understand teen pregnancy prevention issues. And pretty quickly, you'll identify kind of who some of those good organizations are. Your local community foundation and most communities in this country and around the world even have them are also a great source of information and intel because that's a nonprofit that raises money from the community to then give it back into the community. And they often have a really good read on what those organizations are. So you can look at who they're funding and supporting or talk to them to get some good insights. Absolutely. And that idea of going and talking to the people that are affected, I think is so powerful. There's a process with City Year that they do report card reviews. And so the kids, when they get their report card, volunteers with City Year will go and talk through it with them. And so when I was doing that work, I met met with a boy who had been missing his math class like four days a week. And there was a lot of feedback of like, he was lazy, he wasn't showing up, whatever. And we actually got into the conversation. He had to drop his two younger siblings off at school in the morning for his mom who worked in the morning. And it was on the other side of the city. So by the time he dropped them off and got on the bus and got back, he couldn't make that math class. And so helping him was more a matter of, can we switch his schedule and give him a free period in the morning versus just writing him off as he doesn't want to go to math class? That is so common. So common. Such a big issue. Yes. And so we talked about the scarcity mindset, which is part of delusional altruism. But what else goes into delusional altruism? What did you mean by titling the book that way? Yeah, what I meant is that donors... I think almost all donors genuinely want to make a difference, genuinely want to change the world or their neighborhood or their community, but are getting in their own way. And so by delusional, I don't mean crazy. I just mean they're trying to accomplish something and then they put lots of impediments and roadblocks in their own way on their path to trying to accomplish it. And they often don't realize this is happening. So part of that is the scarcity mindset. You know, you want to support an organization, but you're doing it on a shoestring or, you know, you're just kind of hamstringing them along, not giving them what they need. Another is fear. And I think fear holds donors back a lot and it manifests itself in a variety of ways. One is fear of failure and just being afraid, you know, if I support this organization and maybe it's new or it's kind of risky, what if this initiative or program fails and how will I look or what does that mean? When in fact, Philanthropic dollars are some of the most kind of best bets for kind of taking risks, right? Because it's not government funding. Who cares if it failed? Like if it failed, let's learn from that. Like as long as you went into it with the best of intentions, you really put in your best effort. You thought it was the right approach and model and intervention, whatever, and it didn't work. Like, okay, great. Like the vaccine that we are hopefully all getting received this year 
will be a result of lots of past failures, you know, in science that helped scientists learn what worked and didn't work. And thank God, people were able to create this vaccine so quickly. So the failure is fine. And risk taking is a great opportunity for funders. So but that fear of failure, I think is very powerful. Another is a fear of coming out, if you will, in support of the issues and causes that you care about. A lot of people are afraid to take a stand on an issue. Or even, you know, a lot of families want to support an issue that was where someone in their family was impacted by it. But there could be a lot of negative stigma associated with that, like bipolar disorder or substance abuse treatment or suicide or whatever it is. And so they're afraid of being public about that issue because people might recognize that it happened to them and there is a fear of stigma, which is really unfortunate. Or if you recall a couple of years ago when the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris caught on fire, well, there were a lot of extraordinarily wealthy families that came out to donate hundreds of millions of dollars. And often we're kind of new to philanthropy, but this was kind of their opportunity to really give, right? And the world like shamed them. <laughs> like people came out of nowhere to, to criticize these donors to say like, how dare you fund this cathedral when people all around the world are starving? You know, why would you fund this expensive Catholic cathedral, but you're not supporting synagogues that have been, you know, burned or, you know, mosques or whatever. And so if you're the donor, that would cause you to be very fearful. Like, why would I put myself out there again if I'm just going to get criticized for trying to be helpful? And so I think, you know, there's a lot of fear related to that, but also fear of losing control is another. And I think it's sort of it's this notion that, well, it's my money, so I'm going to tell you, the nonprofit, exactly what you can spend it on. And I've seen donors try to give money for a tutoring program, but they wouldn't fund the personnel, the tutors, or they'd fund like an advocacy project, you know, to create policy advocacy, but like literally with their funds couldn't fund the advocates, like somehow funding personnel was bad. Like, but it makes no sense, right? It's delusional because how do you, how do you run a tutoring program without tutors? Like, what are you buying? Pencils? Again, it's this wanting to control your money. That's a big one. And I think another is, I think a lot of donors create too much complexity and bureaucracy and create too many steps in their work. So that would be, you know, you might have a donor advised fund, which is kind of like a charitable checking account, and you want to give away $50,000 a year, but you require the nonprofits to jump through so many hoops, so many application processes, site visits audited financial forums, you know, letters of recommendation, all this stuff to receive like a $5,000 grant. It probably cost them over $1,000 in staff time to be able to apply for that. And then there's the reporting down the line. You think about, do you, what do you really need? What's the minimum amount you actually need to make a decision about how to support a nonprofit? And let's create processes to do that. I really want to get your thoughts on donor-advised funds, which we often get asked about. But before we dive into that topic, let's take a quick moment to hear from our partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. Mama, you want more. More money, time, peace, fulfillment, and joy. To stop surviving and start thriving. To show your kids what it means to live fully. But you can't build a life you love without financial security, which means it's time for you to feel worthy of wealth and confident managing your money. 
The Motivated Mama Society is our monthly membership community where intelligent, driven moms come together to rewrite their money stories, connect with their biggest dreams, and build lasting wealth. With access to our five core foundations courses, monthly live masterclasses and Q&As, and a fantastic community of women who have your back through the ups and downs of life, you'll have what you need to create a life you love. If you're a mom who believes more is possible and you're ready for more money and more time for the things that matter most, the Motivated Mama Society is for you. Learn more at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash join. That's smartmoneymamas.com forward slash join. I can't wait to see you inside. Now, my husband and I have a donor advised fund. And I'm very curious on what your thoughts are on these, because this is actually one of those situations where you worry about judgment and conflict, right? So we opened our donor advised fund. We're super excited about it. We love it. But there's a lot of people that we've heard from that are like, well, that money could just go to charity right now. Why are you keeping money in a donor advised fund instead of immediately distributing it all to organizations that need it? I'm curious about what your thoughts are on those funds. Yeah. So for those of your listeners that aren't as familiar with donor advised funds, it's really like a... A charitable checking account is the easiest way that I know of to describe it, but it's really opening up a fund and that could be at your local community foundation. It could be through an organization like, you know, Fidelity Charitable or Schwab Charitable or some other kind of organization. Basically, you make a contribution. Let's say you give it $10,000 to open your fund and then you as the donor can allocate funding out of that fund as often as you want or quite frankly, as little as you want. And the value for the donor is you immediately get a tax benefit for making that, let's say, $10,000 gift. And then you can take your time or whatever time frame you want to allocate the funding. And the organization that's sponsoring this fund, the Community Foundation, Schwab Charitable, whomever, handles all the transaction. So all you have to say is, hey, I'd like to give money to my local animal shelter. Here's the information and they will handle all of it. They'll handle the tax issues, legal issues, everything. So it's a very easy way for donors to give. And I think the value also of, of it is, you know, sometimes people come into money under duress, really, like somebody died and, uh, you know, they got inherited money. Well, that you're not in the position, I don't think, in that moment to figure out what causes do I care about. I mean, some people come into massive amounts of wealth that way and it's very overwhelming. And so, a donor-advised fund can be a great way to kind of park the money for charitable purposes and then figure out when you're ready to give it away. It's also a great alternative to starting a private foundation. Yes. You know, which would be for people of greater wealth. You know, you wouldn't want to have a foundation, I don't think, unless you had more than probably were giving away, like 2 to $5 million a year. Goals. <laughs> because a foundation is a nonprofit. Like, you are starting a nonprofit organization. You have to do the care and feeding, the hiring, the taxes – Everything. It's a lot. But to your point about like giving it all away now versus later, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that in philanthropy. A lot of people say, well, the needs are so great right now. So people need to give more or give it all or spend down all you have so that we can create the greatest impact possible. And others say, well, yes, and there will be more crises and problems in the future. So we want to make sure that there's resources in the future to be able to support that. I tend to be along the lines of the latter. You know, I want my kids and grandkids and their generations to have resources to help address whatever cause or issue or problem 
or catastrophe <laughs> might emerge. And there's a lot of value, like for your donor advised fund, I imagine you're thinking about how do I involve the boys in this and how do we create this as a family? And so you think about the long-term benefits of raising children who are philanthropic, who are giving, who are generous, who want to give back and then have the knowledge and tools and practices and experiences and positive family memories about doing that. Like that gives me goosebumps to think about, you know what I mean? Like that's so powerful for the future. And when they are earning money and they're, you know, this could cascade into way more money than whatever you put into donor advised funds. So there's arguments to be made for both, but I, I have a donor advised fund as well, and I'm supportive of it. And there's other financial benefits too. We mentioned taxes, but there's you don't pay capital gains on investment growth in donor advised fund if you donate it to a charitable organization, right? And so if you've been able to front load it, like you said, you got an inheritance and you invested it in a donor advised fund and you created a process of giving every year from that fund, any growth over 20 years of pass it down to your kids. Also, you don't have the drag of capital gains on that as well. And so for us, what actually precipitated it was we were gifted some stock of Johnson & Johnson, actually, when we got married. And it had been from an older relative whose husband worked there. And so the cost per share was like a dollar. And then we would have had to pay tax on like 90% of the value of the gift, except if we put it in a donor advised fund, then that money could be used to go to charity. And so we went that route. And that's how we initially funded it. And then we funded it more before I left my last career. That's so smart. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of interesting benefits that can go into there as well. In addition to just the creating a legacy of giving and community care. There's also I mean, the other controversy around donor advised funds in the sense of a downside of them really is that there's no expectation ever right now for the donor to give. So you could kind of park your money there, get your tax benefit and never give the money away. And I, that's a problem. Oh, yes. There are some organizations like Fidelity Charitable that require you to give the money away. They urge you. And then if you don't, they just start giving it away for you, which I think is great. It's important if you're, you know, if you're going to receive the benefit from a tax perspective, it's for the public good. It's for giving back. 100%. So after you explain delusional altruism in your book, you move into the concept of transformational giving. And so I'd love to walk through some aspects of transformational giving for our audience to bring into their own philanthropic journey. So where would you start? Well, I would start with asking the right questions. In the book, I outlined 12 questions that I think all donors should be asking. And I mentioned a few of them, you know, figuring out your why, what's your purpose as a philanthropist, the what question of what are you trying to accomplish with your giving before asking how, given what I want to accomplish, how should I best do that? But also, I think a couple of interesting questions that many donors fail to ask is, one is, what do I already know? And again, I think often we believe that we have to look to other people to figure out the best practices, the solutions, and we don't necessarily know about whatever the issue is. But I think if we take the time ourselves as individuals, families, if you have a corporate giving program, whatever it might be, and ask yourself, like, what do we already know about this issue? Like, let's say you want to support substance abuse treatment. You don't think you know much about it. But you actually know a lot about mental health treatment. Well, you probably know a lot, right? So you know about the negative impact of stigma and how that really holds people back from getting treatment. You know that some people are disproportionately affected by these issues for a variety of reasons. Some people have less access to treatment, financial or otherwise. 
the insurance system that we have in this country doesn't adequately provide supports for either mental health or substance abuse treatment, and on it goes. And so really, if you take the time to brainstorm everything that you know, and I, when I say take the time, I mean like a couple of hours, then you recognize, gosh, I actually know a lot, and there's still some stuff that I don't know. But then you can go after the stuff that you don't know, rather than kind of, again, go into that black Google hole of like never-ending data gathering. A related question, though, is to ask yourself, who else needs to be involved? As I mentioned before, like, yes, you might have been a very successful hedge fund manager or banker or entrepreneur, and you know a lot, but there is still a lot that you don't know. And talking to the people that you are trying to help is one of the best ways to arm yourself with the right information, varying ways of involving them in your decision-making process even. I know funders that have advisory board members of community members who help them make funding decisions. So those, I think, are some important questions along with, is this bringing me joy? And I think while philanthropy can be hard because, you know, the fear that I mentioned or giving in a time of duress, like responding to a natural disaster can be just hard to experience and to be part of, right? It's painful to see that happening to people. Giving should bring you joy. And the ways in which you give should bring you joy. So the activities that you engage in should be joyful because you want to feel passionate and excited and engaged. That will help you continue to to give and to stay involved. So that's kind of one set of ways, I think, to transform is to start with the right questions. Another is to, again, you know, we've learned in this past year the importance of being agile and adaptive as funders. And I think one of the challenges many of us are experiencing right now is it feels like conditions keep changing all around us. It's impossible to plan ahead. How can I create a plan when the world keeps changing? But I think that all of us as donors or as business leaders or as moms, as families, whatever, It's important to create a plan that we can count on now with the information we have currently available. Use it as long, use that plan and begin implementing it for as long as it makes sense and then change it quickly as conditions change and building in that adaptive agility muscles because it's most important to have a plan, a strategy, a giving plan. I don't know, your plan to have a wedding, like whatever you're trying to plan, right? having a plan so that when conditions change, because they will, the future is no more uncertain today than it was last decade or last century. Recognizing, kind of shifting that mindset and recognizing, gosh, there is no new normal coming around the corner. Things are always going to be changing. Let's just kind of go with it as opposed to feel paralyzed by it. And creating that game plan so that you know what you're focusing on, you know what your top priorities are. You can align yourself with what's most important. So if that's, we want to make a difference around ending homelessness a year from now, what are the three, four most important things we can focus on to accomplish that in a year? If it's learning something, if it's finding nonprofits to support, if it's getting involved in a homelessness coalition in your community, whatever. So pick those things, focus on them, and then make the time along the way to check in on that plan to make course corrections. So literally block out in your calendar every two months or whatever it might be to say, how's it coming? Are we making progress? Have things changed internally, like in our family or our organization that would cause us to do something different or in the world? If so, how do we tweak our plan 
what should be abandoned or changed or added. And then you keep going so that you're always focusing on a sentient plan that was really kind of guiding. It's a framework that guides your decision making day to day, week to week, and then make sure that you're focused on what's most important. And if your listeners are interested in this, I do have a guide to this point that I just created. It's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. And so it offers eight practical tips on how to do all the things I just was talking about. And you can go to eightthings.org. And it's a free download. And I think it'll be really useful. Perfect. We will absolutely put that in the show notes. Chris, any last pieces of advice for moms who want to make philanthropy a bigger part of their own money journey and their family's journey? Sure. Well, I think as a person or as a family, what are the issues and causes that are meaningful to you? And, you know, this is a great activity for you to do with your by yourself or your spouse or with your family. And that could be one issue that you all care about, or you could each pick one. And then set yourself on a, a learning journey. Pick a time frame, like between now and June or the next end of the year, and think about what do you want to try to accomplish and engage yourself and your kids in learning about those different kinds of issues and nonprofits. You could listen to podcasts, you could go on some visits to the animal shelter. You know, you can do lots of things to help your kids and your family understand what's important. And then in terms of how much you give, you know, there really is no rule of thumb because everyone's financial situation, of course, varies and it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. But just like saving for retirement, the advice is always just make it go away out of your paycheck every week, you know, before you even notice it. I think that's a really good strategy too with giving. If there's a way to make an ongoing charitable donation, to put it aside so that you have those resources available. And like any aspect of parenting, you know, modeling the behavior that you want your kids to see, I think is really important. I try to physically read the Wall Street Journal when I'm reading the paper, as opposed to looking at it on my phone, because I want my kids to see a newspaper. You know, I want them to see and to know that I'm reading the news, not like scrolling for, I don't know, whatever. That's just a very small gesture and example, but I think it's meaningful. And so I think it's also If you're volunteering, let your kids know that you're volunteering and why you chose that organization and and why it matters so that they can begin to see you as a mom and different kinds of lights and roles that you play in your community. I think that's really important. Absolutely. I'm going to throw a bonus question in here because you brought it up with giving. Everybody's number is different. But one of the things that we hear is like, hey, we only have like 20 or $50 a month to give and it doesn't feel like a lot. Am I better off? contributing $25 a month consistently or waiting until I have $200 or $500 saved up and giving a slightly bigger gift? How does consistency play into actually helping nonprofits do their work? At that level of giving, it probably doesn't really matter. What I think matters most is building a relationship with the nonprofit and letting them know what your plans are. So if your plan is, I'm going to give to you, but we're going to wait till the end of the year, Or my plan is we have this amount of money, we're going to give it to you in monthly contributions. But having that conversation with the nonprofit so that you have that relationship and they feel comfortable coming to you and saying, well, Chelsea, we're so appreciative you plan on giving us money at the end of the year. However, like everything has just changed and we actually need it right now. Any chance you could give us half, but they're not going to call you and ask for that if they don't know you. You know what I mean? And so just having that relationship and that open communication and letting them know what your plans are and what you're able to do and not do and what, you know, and you as a donor asking them, what else do you need besides the $500 I can give you this year? 
are there other ways that I could be helpful? I think that communication and that relationship actually means a lot. Yeah. And I've actually had that experience too, where we, so we give some monthly, some annually, but we've had organizations call and say, Hey, I know you normally give in December, but we have a big donor doing a match or, or whatever for all donations in October. Could you pull some of it forward? And if we hadn't had that relationship, yes, they wouldn't have known to call. Right. And then now we can have a greater impact. So I love opening that line of communication. Now, Chris, before we let you go, we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. Are you ready? Uh, Hopefully. What is something you are most proud of with your money? Most proud of with my money? Actually, in addition to being a mom, I'm a stepmom. I have three stepkids and they're mid to late 20s. But I became a stepmom when they were preteens and teens. And uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is helping my oldest stepdaughter get into college because neither my husband or their mom went to college. So just helping her figure that out. And then I paid for the first semester of her college tuition. So that was a really proud moment because it wasn't what I was expecting to be doing. (laughs) But that's fantastic. I certainly hadn't planned for it. But it was, uh, it was very meaningful to me to be able to help her in that way. I love that. That's such a good one. Congratulations. That's very cool. Now, where can people find your book and follow up with more of your work? Yes. Well, the book is Delusional Altruism. It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Or you could go to delusionalaltruism.com and find all the links there, as well as a free discussion guide and lots of other resources. And then I would suggest actually, again, that download of eight things every philanthropist can do to change the world, even when the world keeps changing at eightthings.org. Download that. And, you know, both of those are landing pages on my website. So you can find out more about me there. Perfect. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Chris, thank you so much for joining us and helping everyone give more to causes that matter. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Mamas, I am so impressed by Chris and the amazing work she does helping people have the most impact on causes that matter to them. Her book, Delusional Altruism, was so eye-opening for me, and I hope this conversation helped you see ways to improve your own charitable giving, too. As always, I've wrapped up my three favorite takeaways from this conversation with Chris that you can take into your own charitable efforts. First, We are all philanthropists. As Chris said, philanthropy is a big fancy word that makes people think they need millions of dollars to qualify. But anyone who wants to make the world a better place is a philanthropist, especially because we can give so much more than money. We can give our time, our connections, our knowledge. And we often discuss how words matter here on the podcast. And I think that no matter how much you're giving, Adopting the mindset of a philanthropist will help you identify more ways you can increase your impact on issues that matter to you. Believe you are a philanthropist, believe you are having impact, and you'll see more ways to do that. Second, scarcity mindset can hold us back from changing the world. We all know that a scarcity mindset can hold us back from reaching our money goals. Mindset is important, but that mindset also leaks into other things we do, like philanthropy. Often, we think we can't start giving until we earn more money, or we wait until the need is urgent, like a natural disaster or pandemic, to pitch in in our communities. And we expect nonprofits to run on a shoestring budget. And I think this is one that often goes under the radar, because we look to things like Charity Navigator and look for organizations that have the absolute lowest possible overhead. 
But while that might mean more money is going to the cause now, it can also reduce their effectiveness and long-term impact too. Think about different ways to consider how that money is being used. Get to know the organizations you're supporting. We're going to talk about that in the next tip. And then judge how you think that money is being used. Think about the type of impact you want to have and start taking small steps to build that into your life today. Create a habit of giving so that when you do have more wealth, it's natural to give more. And finally, build relationships with the organizations you want to support. Financially, let them know your plans. This was a great tip from Chris because it will help them better prepare for the year. And those organizations could let you know times that you could increase your impact by giving a little earlier or a little later when they have donors doing matching. And more broadly, you may find new ways to help out by hearing about the connections that organization needs, the expertise or the volunteers. You will have new ways to get involved. Not to mention the confidence you'll get in the organizations you're supporting by getting to know them better. No matter where you are financially, you have the power to make a big impact on the world, on the things that matter most to you and to your family. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Chris again for coming on the show, sharing her incredible expertise, and doing so much to make the world a better place. You can find links to Chris's website and buy her book, Delusional Altruism, in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Chris. That's K-R-I-S. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you learned anything, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell a friend. I appreciate you. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.